Chronic illness in kids is just through the roof. In fact, it's something that's become standardized and accepted. Things like Lyme, for example, can end up hiding itself in all kinds of different diagnoses, including, you know, a chronic fatigue, um, the oppositional defiant disorders, anxiety, depression. The thing that really is, for me, the most troubling is that kids come into my office, young kids who are on like five, six medications, they're all chasing symptoms and not really addressing any of the foundational pieces. I see this particularly with kids who have sort of emotional expressions of disease and are, who are either have focus issues, you know, rage issues, and depression. That whole spectrum of expression just gets medicated to a point of no return. It's terrifying. Like I've had a four-year-old on Vyvanse for ADHD. A four-year-old, I mean, ADHD and a four-year-old, come on. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Could you imagine as a parent the sense of helplessness you would feel not only to be watching the neurological and psychological regression of your child, but to be told by their medical team that with this diagnosis of autism would only be more regression of your child. Could you imagine as a parent how helpless you would feel in that moment? See, one of the things I realized over the course of my career is that the ability to provide hope, founded hope, was one of the things that emboldened me to continue the work that I did clinically and the work I continue to do now. The power of integrative medicine and looking at the body as a whole opens so many doors that are otherwise shut. My guest today was that mother that I described. Dr. Lauren Lee Stone was busy pursuing her postdoctorate work at Cornell in medieval studies. She started at Yale University with her BA and completed her PhD at Cornell, and I suspect did not imagine in her wildest dreams that she would end up where she is today. Until she sat in that doctor's office and had that diagnosis handed to her child. And rather than accept it, this became that pivotal point and that pivotal moment where she made a decision that she was going to pursue a different course in her career. She didn't accept what that medical team was sharing with her. She made a different decision and a different choice. She decided she was going to figure out how to cure her child herself. And so laid the foundation of Lauren's career, which she's going to share with you that story, but her career in working with thousands upon thousands of other children who were given equally catastrophic and challenging diagnoses and how she unpacks and unlocks these kids. We're going to get into her work around homotoxicology. We're going to talk about toxic load and we're going to discuss the science behind why not all kids respond to things like vaccines the same way. This is not a controversial episode in the way you might think. This is a controversial episode because it requires that all of us in our society lift up the rug and look underneath. Acknowledge the fact that 54% of children are currently experiencing chronic disease. 
And it doesn't have to be that way. When we know better, we can do better. And the outcome of this conversation is to provide you with hope, to provide you with a framework, a way of thinking and intelligent questions to ask so that you don't find yourself at the same place, at the dead end of a medical conversation where you feel hopeless as a parent. You know, this entire series has really been about finding new solutions because around us are more and more challenges for our kids. In asking the right questions and reaching out to the right resources, there's an opportunity for all of us to be able to move together with a new degree of hope and in a new direction. This conversation with Dr. Lauren Lee Stone was so inspiring, and I'm excited for you to get to hear it now. Dr. Lauren Lee Stone, welcome to the Impact Podcast. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Okay, so we have a lot that we are going to unpack today. And and you're here as my final guest as part of our series. I'm talking all about children's health and this idea that the kids are not okay. And the reason that I have you at the very end of this conversation is because we're going to talk about some really heavy stuff and we're going to move it in the direction of hope and possibility because I know there are a lot of parents out there managing chronic conditions with their kids and they feel like they are stuck in this state of hopelessness. And this this is your arena of expertise. It's also something that you can relate to as a parent. And I'm wondering if we can start there, Lauren, if you can share with us a little bit about your story, which I know is also your child's story, and how you came to be doing such amazing work with children. So I was actually in graduate school when I had my first child, and he was born actually healthy and fine and lovely. But as he progressed through his developmental stages, I realized that something was not right and was uh, not really functionally going well. He started hand flapping at three months. He had seizures at 18 months and ended up taking him to the Yale Child Study Center where he was diagnosed with autism. We were told that he would be institutionalized, that there was nothing we could do. He would just regress, continue to regress, in fact. And so I decided to take his health into my own hands because as a parent, you'd never want to hear that there's nothing you can do for your child. So at the time, I had just finished getting my PhD actually in um, Italian and French medieval and Renaissance literature. I was teaching at Cornell. So I just quit all of that and I decided uh, to go back to school. Just intuitively, I knew that in order to heal whatever was going on with my little guy, I had to start with biochemistry because I felt like there was just something wrong there. So I went back for biochemistry and for nutrition. I ended up getting a master's and then I moved again sort of intuitively into homeopathy and homotoxicology and all kinds of other modalities. Um, And the long and the short of the story is that my son is fully recovered, fully functional, beautiful man getting his PhD actually right now in chemical engineering. So yeah, so it's a a beautiful end of the story. So I I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this who are openly questioning. So I'm going to question, how does that happen? Like, how do you have a diagnosis, which feels as dead ended as autism, and and yet you found a way to not not only mitigate and prevent it from getting worse, but, you know, he, he's living this incredible, beautiful, amazing, self actualized life, like, what, based on your background, you've now worked with thousands of children, 
in this capacity? Like what was going on? How was this something that was reversible? Yeah. So early on, I came to the notion and the resolve that his issues were related to toxic overload. I thought I was young and perfectly healthy, but I really didn't know anything um, about being healthy. I just knew what what I was brought up with. And my mom was, you know, an amazing person, but she was a nurse. She was an oncology nurse of all things, actually. And we were sort of fed antibiotics as like candy. And, you know, we had tab in the fridge and that's what we drank. It was a different kind of lifestyle. So for my son, I realized early on that he was primarily mercury toxic. We did hair samples and, um, and whatever else. And it came just over the top with mercury. And I realized too that the connection between I had amalgams in my mouth that were, you know, leaching into my body, throughout my body and passing to my baby in utero. Um, So he was born mercury toxic. And then given the world that we live in, we are constantly assaulted by heavy metals, chemicals, pesticides, whatever else is in the environment through our foods, through our water, in the air we breathe, where I live in Connecticut, it's super beautiful, but they've done studies and we have apparently a high, high level of mercury contamination in the air because we have a Connecticut light and power station just, you know, downwind from us or upwind from us, whichever it is, yeah, upwind. I had no idea, but, you know, I live out in the woods and he was being, you know, poisoned. So my journey was to figure out what I needed to do to clean up his life and to detox his body. And the first step was obviously food. I think that we are all unfortunately sort of in a in a really, really compromised place because of the food in the United States. Standard American diet is horrific. Our soils are incredibly depleted. I just read a statistic recently that um, if you were to compare an orange from 1950 to an orange today, you'd have to eat eight oranges to get the same amount of vitamin A as you would have gotten in one orange in 1950. The first setting the stage was changing his diet, figuring out what he was sensitive to and taking out everything and anything that was toxic. And it's a lot of work, uh, you know, given, given our food supply. And then secondarily, it was feeding his mitochondria feeding his body. He wasn't getting the nutrients he needed. He wasn't getting them from my breast milk. He wasn't getting them because I was nutrient poor, right? He wasn't getting them from the foods I was feeding him. Um, So here he was in a toxic overload and he didn't have the energy to push those toxins out, you know, and we can back up a little bit and talk about his genetics, which were, which were predisposing factors, of course, you know, but the whole picture really, it's a, it's a, it's a total load picture for each of us. Our individual story is a little bit different. But, you know, it's always about the genetics, plus the exposures, plus uh, emotional stresses, whatever is the entire picture leads you to whatever health, health status you have. And for my son, his genetics were not great, right? In the fact that, not that his genetics weren't great, he's great. It's just that he is a slow detoxifier. He was harder for him to get rid of things. And for me, I was incredibly toxic without knowing it. And so I passed everything to him, you know, and then any number of exposures that he had in early childhood, you know, were sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. 
It's interesting. I would have women come to me who were looking to get pregnant. They'd had their first baby and now they were into health and they, they would they would just inquire on this concept of detox. They're like, what's the best detox I could ever do? And I just finally had to be honest with people, like the most profound detox you will ever have is to actually have a baby. So if you don't clean your body up beforehand, like I practiced a lot of environmental medicine and, and we would we would test for heavy metals. It was so amazing to watch how the mercury burden in a mother would decrease after she had a baby when we would look at these before and afters. This poor little child will pull those elements and the genetic piece, like we can't underscore this enough. And this is where this huge challenge around research comes into play is because it's not the norm that kids have these really slow detox uh, pathways. And there's a confluence of genetic events that lead to that. But boy, oh boy, when you have that, it increases risk factors across the board. And if only we had the opportunity to understand that and have nuanced conversations around some of these, some of these elements. How long did it take you in working with him for you to start to see a reversal in terms of his symptomology? You know, it's so interesting. The second we gave, started giving him amino acids, which I realized it was just bypassing his really faulty, leaky gut, his brain started changing and he started, you know, connecting. And it was amazing. So we were giving him amino acids. Uh, we gave him, obviously, fatty acids and, and then heavy-duty mitochondrial support. It was a life-changing event for him to actually get nutrients in there. And then second to that was learning about the homeopathic detoxes and starting to use homeopathics to help revitalize his, you know, his essential energy in his systems because they were all shut down. You know, his body didn't even know. It was in a, such a state of fight or flight, it stopped working. We take out the toxins. We supply the nutrients. Once the body is strong enough, you start to give the gentle homeopathic detox, which will help to strengthen, but also re-educate the system. You know, amino acids and fatty acids, and then you talked about mitochondrial mitochondrial support. For those people who aren't familiar with the mitochondria or hear it in, in sort of cursory passing, what is it and why was it so critical to this overall picture? So the mitochondria, if you remember back to high school biology, they're the powerhouse of the cell. They, they provide the basic energy structure for our bodies to function. Um, and if you don't have the nutrients to power that energy, you are going to end up using whatever energy you have for basic life functions. Things like detoxification is certainly something that is not essential to keeping your heart pumping and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, you know, your, whatever your body trying to assimilate its nutrients. So, so given again, I, I touched upon the fact that our soils are depleted. Our food sources are, are really not what they should be. We are not getting the nutrients we need often to support our mitochondria in a way that we should be supporting them. We're also not eating foods that will help to support, you know, that energy production. The unfortunate truth is that we have to, in most cases, at least with the kids that I deal with, you have to supplement. And really just giving that energetic boost to the cell, you know, once you have that extra energy, you can, the body can choose to use it where it will. And part of that is obviously to clean house. Who are the kids that you work with? 
now. I mean, we had this discussion before where, you know, and, and you talk openly about this idea that like 54% of kids now are managing some sort of chronic disease. Which cohort within the 54% of kids are, are you working with in your practice? I work with a lot of PANS and PANDAS children. I, I do see kids who have other issues as well, because it, again, I feel like everything is sort of multifactorial and the diagnosis is sort of limiting uh, because we are the, the sum of our exposures, right? The sum of our, our genes plus our, you know, our immune system's ability to interact and then our exposures. So yeah, primarily PANS, PANDAS, but um, I see a lot of pediatric anxiety, depression, I see a lot of obviously gut dysfunction. I see a lot of autism, ADD, ADHD, that kind of profile. What is PANS and PANDAS? PANS and PANDAS are fairly recent diagnoses in the past sort of 15 years, maybe 20 years at this point. PANDAS, maybe 20 years. PANS, a little bit uh, more recent. So, you know, there are two different categories which describe basically the same, a similar profile. So PANDAS is um, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. So it's a neuropsychiatric manifestation of an immune response to strep. And then PANS is a bit broader and very much broader in its uh, coverage of what it deals with or what it holds under its umbrella. So it, it stands for Pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, right? So it can include anything from, from Lyme to mold to any other kind of infectious trigger. But the thing that I like to say is I feel that in both PANS and PANDAS, it's not just the infection. It's the entire story behind how the immune system came to be malfunctioning. It's multifactorial. It's, it's many things coming together. And in the case of PANDAS, it's strep that is the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, you know, the point of departure for the onset of symptoms. But it's not the only thing. So eradicating the strep, as important as that is, there, there's so much in that underbelly that needs to be addressed, those foundational pieces. I think there's so many parents who are like, hold up, are you talking about like the strep that is strep throat that my kid has four times a year and they take antibiotics for and is you know, functionally pervasive in our society? Is that the strep we're talking about? It is the strep we're talking about. And, you know, for some kids, they can get strep and, you know, either take antibiotics or not take antibiotics and be fine, right? And for others, and again, this is that total load or that immune story, for others, it, it has uh, other manifestations and other impacts on the immune system. Strep is, is very um, stealthy bacteria. And can, when left untreated, have all kinds of downstream effects, can be life-threatening. For our purposes, what ends up happening is that the strep bacteria, through a process of molecular mimicry, ends up creating or wreaking havoc in the dopamine receptors in the brain, in the basal ganglia, and it causes downstream neuropsychiatric symptoms, including OCD, anxiety, oppositional behaviors, panic attacks, you name it. There are all kinds of things lots of presentations. I want to get into this notion of total load and things parents can look for. I also just want to call out if you are a parent out there who has a child who is experiencing strep with any level of frequency or ongoing nature, you need to work with a practitioner to address that root cause piece. 
It's not that strep is so popular that your poor kid is coming in contact with this over and over again. Such a red flag if you're if you're dealing with recurrent strep infections. I'm just going to call it out. Find a naturopath near you so you don't end up in Lauren's <laughs> office. Now, <laughs> with those kids that do, like, are, are there flags that parents can look for beforehand? I mean, what we're really talking about kids are kids who who probably had some level of susceptibility beforehand. Are there things that we can note as parents that make us aware of that increased risk? Immune dysfunction is something that, you know, that you can kind of see progress over time. I often see in my office in the histories, you know, we have a child who had reflux when they were babies, for example, who had ear infections, who had just these systemic immune issues that set them up for a different path. So, for example, with reflux, you know, you're getting into an issue of, you know, not not absorbing your proteins. We talked a little bit about those amino acids. Also lowered absorption, of, you know, if you have low stomach acid, which is the point of departure for reflux, you're gonna, you know, in addition to not being digesting and absorbing, you're not gonna be absorbing certain minerals, you're not gonna be absorbing your B12. So you're setting the stage for having, you know, having a compromised system. You know, and I, I also see that kids who have sort of chronic allergies tend to be ones who, already are immune, their immune system is sensitive, their immune system is, you know, could use some work to be regulated, right? There's also background issues, you know, like where I live and I think actually internationally at this point, I feel that as far as infections are concerned, I think Lyme plays a really big role as a background issue for a lot of these, you know, chronic conditions. It kind of just sits in the background, we don't know it's there, it's passed again, from mother to child, don't have to have a tick bite to get it or to have it or to be caring. And so it just lowers the immune threshold to being able to deal with a lot of these infections. Talk about this idea that you don't have to have a tick bite to have Lyme. So Lyme at this point is born by mosquitoes. It's born by flies, fleas. It's sexually transmitted, you know, and it passes through the placenta. Uh, so it's really is something that is, I think, endemic to our society and life right now. If your immune system is strong, you deal with it, right? But if it's not, you end up creating cascades of inflammation. And to back up a little more, that kind of um, dysregulated immune system is one that will be the point of departure for multiple food allergies, for example, you know, for multiple, for immune system that's just unable to distinguish what is appropriate to go after and what isn't. I think it was really important to draw attention to that because I've had throughout, we've all been talking about immune health for the last two years for a variety of reasons. And, and people would often ask me, you know, what is your level of, of fear with respect to COVID and your kids and all of these pieces? And, uh, I, you know, I would talk a lot about the fact that it's all, it's all relative and that I am infinitely more concerned about my kids having exposure to Lyme than I am about them having exposure to uh, to COVID. And they're always surprised, like, well, what about long haul COVID? And I'm like, well, what about long haul Lyme? Um, and so I think this idea and what COVID's really done is it's brought to the forefront those vacancies in, in our sort of constitutional knowledge as a society around health. This notion of chronic disease is like, limited to diabetes, heart disease, and, and cancer. And we kind of overlook these other more, more subtle elements. And so thank you, COVID, for bringing the conversation of long haul 
to the table. Um, but I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I, I am guessing that it's part of the spectrum of what you are seeing are long haul manifestations of infections. What is that looking like in kids and what are some of the labels that kids are walking in with? Chronic illness in kids is just through the roof. It's something that, in fact, it's something that's become kind of, you know, standardized and accepted. Things like Lyme, for example, can end up hiding itself in all kinds of different diagnoses, including, you know, a chronic fatigue, um, the oppositional defiant disorders, anxiety, depression, all the pants, pandas, obviously, all of these things. The thing that really is, for me, the most troubling is that kids come into my office, young kids who are on like five, six medications, they're all chasing symptoms and not really addressing any of the foundational pieces. I see this particularly with kids who have sort of emotional expressions of disease and are, who are either have focus issues, you know, rage issues and depression, that whole spectrum of expression just gets medicated to a point of no return. And when actually there's an affection that's underlying all of this, it breaks my heart really, you know, to see young kids like, you know, four or five, six on bipolar medications, for example, it's terrifying. Like I've had a four-year-old on Vyvanse for ADHD, a four-year-old, I mean, ADHD and a four-year-old, come on. It's just, it's horrible. There is the the root of, of sort of toxic load in susceptible kids. And then there there are the societal influences around some of these pieces. What are some of the commonalities that you can you can comment on? Are there are you seeing shifts in in prescription patterns from physicians? Are there food commonalities with these kids? Like what are some of the common features that you're seeing in these extreme manifestations of, of chronic disease? Well, I would say that the most basic commonality is um, food, right, is our diet. And I would say that probably the most important piece that we need to change right now is glyphosate. And thankfully, there have been a few great, you know, a few great uh, rulings recently on glyphosate in the United States, just the past two weeks, I think. Anyway, um, glyphosate is Roundup, for those of you who don't know, it's the chemical component of the, the pesticide that's literally graces all of the standard American diet, any conventional food, glyphosate or Roundup. Well, I think it's, it's one of those foundational pieces in that it was first patented as an antibiotic. So every time that you eat a food, you know, your piece of bread from the store that has glyphosate in it, you are necessarily killing off the bacteria in your gut. You know, it's, it's just a, a lose-lose situation. Glyphosate also increases what's called leaky gut. It actually is a foundational piece of leaky gut. It it causes this chemical called zonulin to be produced, which uh, opens the gut lining. And glyphosate is also um, a glycine analog, which means that it replaces glycine in our body. It is recreating the structure of our collagen in the body, which is causing um, just a basic state of inflammation and reactivity, um, immune re reactivity, walking around every day. So, I would say that that is, that is one of the pieces that I think links everything. If your gut isn't sound, if your structure isn't sound, how is your immune health going to be sound? So I just want everyone to know, we're going to go on like a real positive tangent in a hot second. At the same time, and part of why I wanted to have the series is that 
you know, everything to me that you're describing is society sweeping the outliers under the rug, right? It is inconvenient for us that glyphosate is a problem. And so we don't, we don't talk about that. It is inconvenient for us that some of these kids don't fit the profile in, you know, in a post-vaccine situation, in a post-exposure situation. So we, we don't want to talk about that. That's what this whole series has been about is really talking about these things that are getting swept under the rug. So while we're just lifting up the rug for a hot second, and then we're going to go back to the pretty living room and have a positive upswing. I did a podcast. I was looking at this a second ago. I did a podcast. It was episode 13 of the Anthropology Podcast with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. And Dr. Seneff is probably one of the leading researchers in the world on glyphosate and its influence on us from a physiological perspective. And she talks about in that interview, for anyone who's like, I'm already dark, we might as well go darker. She talks about in that uh, interview, the correlation and correlation doesn't mean causation. But in the 1970s, when they first were starting to see these epidemic levels of diabetes start to emerge and huge numbers of metabolic instability, that it was correlating uh, almost perfectly with the introduction and the the intensity of use of glyphosate on crops in uh, the United States in particular. And she goes into all sorts of other research. It's so, so compelling and so pervasive. And when we talk about, um, I know you know this, Lauren, but I'm just talking about this for everybody else. When we talk about GMO foods and the debate with GMO foods, half the foods are not being genetically modified to make them more nutrient dense to help your kids. They're genetically modifying these plants so they don't die when they are sprayed with Roundup. I, like, I just, I want to call all of these elements out because on this notion of, you know, what can we do as, as parents, like sometimes we just kind of read the dark news so we can make smarter decisions and we don't have to sit in it, but we have to, we have to know about it so that we can navigate this world. Cause this, this world is a place that requires navigation on the part of our kids. My diatribe is over, but I wanted to say that, you know, on the part of glyphosate. So. In the spirit of moving forward in a really positive way. When these kids come to you and these families come to you feeling hopeless, what is the process that you take these kids through to uncover what's happening at a root cause level? At the beginning, you talked about homotoxicology. I think everyone's like, I have no idea what that is. Sounds super smart, but I don't know what that means in the body. So what is your process to start to uncover these these patterns in kids and move them towards health? So homotoxicology, we can start there. Homotoxicology, if you break it down, it's homo is man, woman, and toxicology is a study of toxins. So really it's a study of how toxins or toxicants, foreign materials, right, um, affect human body. And toxins can be anything from, you know, we were talking about infection, you know, like Lyme, strep, all of those things, viruses as well, parasites. Toxins can also come in the form of metals and pesticides and all of those kinds of environmental issues. Toxins can also be stress in the form of emotional and, you know, intergenerational stressors, right? That are manifest in the emotional body, right? So homotoxicology is this beautiful way of viewing the body as a whole. You know, the, the founder of homotoxicology, Hans Reykjavik, he says, the body is a flow system. And I love that because in our Western model, we tend to compartmentalize things. So we have, you know, a gastroenterologist for a GI problem. We have a hematologist for blood problems. 
you know, cardiologists for heart problems. But really, in truth, everything is a part of a unified system, right? And you can't speak of one without speaking of the whole. And so that's what homotoxicology does. It looks at the whole being, right? And it also looks at the being in terms of essential, essential foundation, which really is, if we break it down, it's light. It's light and vibration, right? We are all light beings. We are all made up of vibration. And if you, you know, just think back to, you know, basic chemistry, right? Our, um, our bodies are made up of cells, right? Which can be broken down into molecules and to atoms. And then we have the electrons which circle the atom and the electrons vibrate. And so everything in the universe has its own you know, electromagnetic vibrational signature. And that includes living things, non-living things. It includes, you know, things that are healthy for us and things that are not healthy for us. Um, it also includes things like, you know, healthy tissues versus diseased tissues. So when somebody comes into my office, the perspective I take is one of the whole being, not just you had strep, let's eradicate the strep. I do tests, I do a lot of testing. We do testing for gut health, right? Because we want to make sure that the gut is healed. You cannot have a healthy brain without a healthy gut because the blood brain barrier um, and the gut barrier are intimately associated. So we start at the gut. We start by healing the gut. And we start by re-educating the family on foods. And that in and of itself is going to take down that toxic load by a huge percentage. You just change the food and you know, you're already halfway there. Once we get those foundations laid, the detox is super gentle. I use um, homeopathics. I use a um, combination of um, sarcodes and nosodes and flower remedies and drainers. Uh, and the idea is to, again, create a place, a system where the body is actually working in harmony again, so that all the pathways are open, right? And eliminating, meaning that the child is pooping every day, um, the child is sweating, the lymph is moving, we're having exercise, we're doing whatever we need to create a unified system. The liver is supported, the gallbladder is supported, so that all of those detox systems are open and, and, and working. And once, once that is done, you can start to gently move in to educate the body to detox for whatever else is a part of this multifactorial picture. The reason I believe that the, the homeopathics work so brilliantly is because unlike medications, which are inherently disempowering to the body because they do the work for the body, homeopathics re-educate the body and you know help the body to actually function again. So mm -hmm. if we're detoxing for strep, it's not like an antibiotic that's going to kill the strep and then you know your body has to push out whatever is left. The homeopathic is going to actually help the body to recognize the strep. One of the main problems with a dysfunctional immune system is that the immune system has lost sight of what it needs to do. <laughs> like the, you know, the strep is hiding effectively in the tissues and, uh, you know, the immune system is confused and is either attacking the tissues or not doing anything or depositing things deeper. The homeopathics have this brilliant way of re-educating and reawakening the immune system to be able to work the way it's supposed to work. So it's basically those are the layers. It's, it's, you know, we heal the gut, we lay the foundation with food, we 
start with drainage. We make sure the body is draining. And then we do targeted um, homeopathic detoxes for the infections and then also for all of, you know, whatever is um, lingering in and around the infection because it's never just one thing. You know, in my experience, infections like Lyme and strep and whatever else live often in biofilms, which means that they have, they have this little happy family of heavy metals that are with them, usually, you know, some form of fungus that's with them, and they all are sort of together hiding out in the body. Uh, so when you're detoxing for one, you're necessarily detoxing for them all, but it's nice to reawaken the body to each of those component parts so that, you know, we can, the end result is strengthening the immune system. So we don't backslide into the same pattern. If you could just have a moment where you get to talk to all the parents of the world, because all the parents of the world listen to my podcast. Um, but if you, if you could tell them, if you could just have them focus on one thing, because I feel like that's one of our challenges as parents is it's like, I don't know where to start. If we could just do one thing, what would you want us to start with? Food. Yeah. Take a, take a deep dive into what you're eating and, and try to, try to A, get rid of glyphosate in your diet, which necessarily means getting rid of gluten, unfortunately, because we all love our bread. Yeah. And try to try your best to get real food in there. Real food. Why is the gluten piece so critical to the glyphosate story? Uh, because gluten has been so contaminated uh, that even if you eat organic, I mean, some people say, oh, I can eat organic gluten, right? But no, you can't because gluten in and of itself is inflammatory, uh, whether or not you have an allergy. Uh, but the other piece is that we've all been exposed to gluten that's been contaminated so thoroughly with the glyphosate that the body really doesn't know the difference uh, between a, an organic gluten versus a gluten that's been sprayed. You could, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause an immune reaction no matter what. And gluten also, um, again, it's pro-inflammatory in the gut. So it's going to increase that leaky gut that we want to heal. Uh, I have such a fun story with gluten. I might have to do a whole podcast on my my journey from my celiac diagnosis to realizing I don't have have celiac to knowing I get I get really severe reactions to glyphosate exposure. I, I will have a whole series called Dark Podcast Episodes, and I'll go really deep. Uh, <laughs> I'll go really deep on those. Uh, Lauren, I feel like this is a really perfect place to transition, and I value your your knowledge and perspective and the and the hope that you can provide for so many families who've just been told that's it, like. Let's talk about how we manage this. You've got so many solutions. And, you know, even the homeopathic piece, it works so beautifully on kids. When you, when you get the stuff out of the way, kids respond uh, really beautifully to it as, as an option. So I'm just excited about the work that you get to do with, uh, with parents who have been otherwise handed a dead end to their journey. So thank you for that piece. This transition and this component, I call them my impact ingredients. So this is where we have a chance to just kind of get to know you and some of your perspectives and the way you do things. So my first question for you um, is what, what, if any, like weird skill or talent do you have that we might not otherwise know about unless we knew you intimately? <laughs> I talk to animals. <laughs> okay, I like it. All animals? Um, mostly cats, but yeah, I can pretty much talk to most animals. Okay. Do the animals come to you? They like me, usually. Yeah. My, my sister's like this. Animals <laughs> are just like straight, straight in. What's the biggest non-negotiable for you in your life? 
Oh my gosh. Um, the biggest non-negotiable for me. Um, I have to, I have to be near the ocean at least every few months. What do you do for fun or play? Um, I dance. I dance every day. Amazing. As an entrepreneur, were you born this way or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? Well, I was always, mm, I think I learned to become for me. I think that I, I've always been interested in creating things. So it's a little bit of both. And last question, what do you want your legacy of impact to be? I want parents to take back control of their children's health and really know that they have the power to heal their kids. They do. And we've been told by the establishment that we need to listen or we are, you know, it's dangerous what you're doing. I mean, I remember with my son, I was told that it was dangerous. I had to fire my pediatrician. Like you're putting your child in danger, like all of this stuff. And the truth is as parents, you know, you know, just use your intuition and you know, you, you, you know, what's best and trust yourself. Lauren Lee Stone, you are amazing. I appreciate your work so much. Where can we send people to learn more about what you are doing? And I know you in particular have got some information for parents on pans and pandas. Yeah. So my website is Althea Health and Wellness, or you can just do laurenleestone.com too. Both go to the same place. I have some great material on pans and pandas. I have an ebook on how to reduce brain inflammation in your child with pans and pandas, but it would go for um, you know, it's not just pants and pandas. I think that um, the epidemic of brain inflammation is something that is a little bit broader than just that single diagnosis. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, we had that message shared at back. I'm looking again at episode 263 with Dr. Medea Saeed. She talked about this notion of, of brain inflammation. Everyone is on the same page who was treating kids from an integrative uh, perspective. I value you all so much. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you so much. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact. Impact.